This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Money is a big part of our lives and well-being. You need money to put food on the table, to send your kids to school, and even for healthcare. But can money buy happiness? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T. He's an Associate Professor in Psychology at Health University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Eugene. How are you? I'm very good, Dashan. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into the topic, Dr. Eugene. What does psychological research say about money buying happiness? Are those with more money happier than those with less? Well, Dashran, that's an age-old question. It's a research question that has occupied the thoughts and the minds of a lot of psychologists, the link between money and happiness. So the general consensus we're seeing from the evidence from psych research is that money does, I'll put this in quote marks, right. uh, buy happiness, but, but importantly, up to a certain point. So I won't get into the details of where that cutoff point is, but since most of the data is from studies um, in, in the U.S., if you're curious, it's about 75,000 US dollars a year. Uh, but most importantly, the general finding is that when you've earned or you know, have your basic needs met, you can provide sufficiently for yourself, your lifestyle, and your dependents, then the relationship between money and happiness actually tapers off, right? So in other words, we see a diminishing returns for the economists out there on, on money's effects on happiness past that point, at least, at least from the data from the US, right? Right. Other factors then become uh, better determinants of happiness than money. So to answer your second question, are those with money happier than those with less? Uh, I would say maybe not. Hmm. Not necessarily so, yeah. But I'm quite certain that those with money are going to be less miserable. You know, before we get deeper into the topic, right, how exactly are we defining happiness here in this context, right? Are we talking about that feeling of excitement and, and joy or, con- or perhaps contentment? Um, or are we talking about something else entirely? How would you define happiness in this context? Uh, it's a butterfly we always chase, isn't it? <laughs> seem able to catch and then when we stop doing anything at all the butterfly just lands on our shoulder well, the the definition of happiness as i've come to understand and also to appreciate and i think we can um agree on this for this conversation that we're having is that happiness is a pleasant individual state in which one has frequent i stress the word frequent here frequent experiences of positive pleasant emotions, uh, like the emotions you described, they also report high levels of life satisfaction. If you ask them, you know, if you were doing anything differently, would you relive your life? Would you go back, rewind and, you know, live your life differently again? People high on happiness, right? High on life satisfaction. They're going to say, hey, you know what? A couple of regrets leading up to this point, but I generally won't change a lot of my life. And Overall, as well, a generally a, a healthy sense of overall well-being that your life is, is is put together, that they're content with, you know, major aspects in their life, their work, their relationships. So you mentioned, right, and I wanted to highlight this as well, excitement, joy, contentment. So I consider those to be specific emotion states. Right. They are mostly fleeting, temporary, the, the ups and downs, right, the highs in this case on your day-to-day experiences. So other emotions that might feature as part of what we call a, a happy life, certainly someone high on happiness, include pride, right, from, from achievements, a feeling of love from mm. family and friends, 
but they are, don't get me wrong, an important part of what we mean by happiness. There's no disentangling positive emotions from happiness. A happy life would, uh, among other things, comprise the experience right, of these pleasant, positive emotions more frequently than a less happy life. Now, you brought up positive emotions, right? And you also brought up the word um, pride. And I'm wondering, um, you know, if different types of, let's say, money affects different or specific types of positive uh, uh, emotion and, and versus, you know, other positive emotions. Like, for example, um, when I when I hear the word pride, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of something very personal to me, right? Uh, something very self, uh, self-focused self um, versus, mm-hmm. let's say, something like, um, you know, love and compassion or, you know, things like that. It, it It's more out word looking right i'm i'm wondering if you know these more self focused positive emotions are more linked with happiness and uh, with, with with money i, I mean more um, influenced by money um, mm-hmm. further versus like uh, you know outward focused and um, positive emotions mm, certainly i think that's a good question it's got me uh, almost scratching my head a little bit i'm still thinking how do i phrase the answer to this right. a tough question that <laughs> Um, I would say, yeah, I think if you link positive emotions such as pride, right, and that comes from achievement, if we're talking about, you know, uh, success career-wise, that's also going to be a contributing factor to your happiness. But that's one particular dimension, right? Uh, That emotion of pride seems attached to feelings of achievement, accomplishment, success, right? That is that is fulfilling and all the better if you have a significant, meaningful job. And then you have other emotions, what I think you refer to as other focused emotions, looking externally, outwardly, you mentioned love and compassion. I think those feature heavily as well in terms of, um, you know, connections, relationships with others. Where I think it gets a little bit blurry, right, is that you can always say that I'm proud of being a family man. I'm proud of my my, my children's right. achievement, That's true. right? And likewise, you could say like, I love my job, right? But that kind of love is a different kind of love. The right. target being the work itself, the meaningfulness of the experience of going to the office every day and running a show like this one, <laughs> right? So, so I think we we can just maybe generally just um, expound on the fact that different emotions across different aspects of your life, be it more in the personal sphere or the professional sphere, um, all of those are going to contribute to your overall sense of happiness. And, you know, when, it, when, it, when we talk about money buying happiness, right, um, you know, wealth, all of these things, um, there are two ways to get it. Um, number one is, of course, um, you know, through hard work, um, you know, you, you start up your own businesses or you are, you know, climbing up the corporate ladder or whatever it may be. Even if you're an artist um, painting and, and you're a musician, um, something that you create by yourself um, versus... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, inherited wealth. Um, you come from, you know, rich family and, and things like that. Um, is there a difference in, in the happiness generated between earned wealth and inherited wealth? Uh, that's an interesting question, Dashran. I uh, did a bit of poking around right. on uh, the research on this. And it turns out, I think uh, you and I made a somewhat correct guess that indeed it was uh, those who earned their wealth that reported greater happiness than those who inherited their wealth or say married into money. Uh, So this finding comes from a study by the Harvard Business School. Uh, Researchers sampled more than 4,000 millionaires about their wealth and their happiness. Uh, And and so they did indeed find this effect that those who earned their wealth to slogging through it, right, through hard work, they reported high levels of happiness. 
Um, I, I suspect, though, although I did not get into the uh, details of uh, the study, that the reason may be that earned wealth also brings with it a sense of psychological ownership, right? right? The economists will know this, behavioral economists will know that ownership of that achievement, some pride, we go back to pride again in knowing that one is successful financially or met their business goals on the basis of their own merits and capabilities, right? So I, I think it's a sense that, you know, I, I made this, right? I, I've accomplished this and right. uh, the success, the, the, the money that I've earned is mine to call my own. Now, I want to press that a little further because earlier, you know, you brought up something very interesting. I think you put it really well when you, when you sort of um, deduced that, you know, this is a, a little bit of a complex a topic, but what you can say is that people with more money are less miserable. There may be a, a certain threshold in which, you know, your happiness doesn't go beyond that, but you can say that people with more money are less miserable. And I'm wondering mm. if, you know, this applies to the earned versus inherited um, aspect as well. Because yes, um, you know, you when you're working hard towards something, um, mm-hmm. you may have that sense of accomplishment, right? Like I'm achieving something like, uh, oh, I, I recorded a, a new album and I put it out and then people bought it. Um, I, I'm like this top recording artist or whatever it may be. Or even if you're, you know, you're becoming an employee of the month and getting some bonus, if, if, you yeah. know, even in a fast food chain or whatever, it feels like, you know, you're, you're rewarded, right? Your hard work has paid off. But I'm wondering if it if it means that people who inherited their wealth, it doesn't mean they are more miserable. It just mm, means that mm. they are not getting this, you know, burst of emotions that, you know, yeah, I accomplished something which brought this wealth. But technically, even although you don't inherit, uh, you don't earn the wealth, if you have your wealth, you're still not going to be miserable as someone yes. who's earning minimum wage and climbing up the ladder in that sense. Yeah. I see where you're going with this, Dasha, and I completely agree. Look, it's not... It's not to say that if you have inherited your wealth, right, you're going to be necessarily unhappy or, you know, let alone miserable. A lot of your basic needs are going to be taken care of as well. Mm-hmm. So I think here it might be useful to think about how people spend their money rather than just whether they're in possession of money. And we've seen some really interesting research coming out again, unfortunately, right, or for better or for worse, a lot of the data and a lot of the studies are from the US, right, on how people spend their money. So as a general observation, we find that experiential purchases tend to trump material purchases. So if you're spending money on trips, holidays, vacations, fleeting, temporary you know, experiences, that tends to you know, have, a, have a better effect on your overall happiness than if you would spend them on material possessions. Uh, and another seemingly radical counterintuitive finding from this set of studies is that people who spend money on others rather than on themselves they also tend to report high levels of happiness. So just to bring us back to the question that you asked, I think if you've inherited your wealth, right? Um, If not, you know, needed to work too hard for it, I should say. (laughs) But if you spend your money in a way that uh, psychological research tells us leads to long lasting positive effects, spending on others, donating it for a charitable cause, you can see impact, you can see meaning. So you might not have that sense of achievement or accomplishment that comes from earning the money, but the way in which you spend the money prolongs your happiness because it fosters good connections with others, allows you to play a meaningful role, right, to the benefit to contributing towards the greater good to society, for instance. So I think that would be my answer to your question. 
Now, what about this? You know, on, on the one end, you have earned wealth. On the other hand, you have inherited wealth. And then I, I think of something in the middle of both. Mm-hmm. Because you may not come from old money, but what if you win the lottery? You know, oh. you know <laughs> that's the, because you know it's it's different from you know growing up with rich parents or things like that. You know you can be a middle class person, a poor person, and you can still go and win the lottery. You can win millions of dollars in the you know playing 4D and whatnot. Does yeah. that bring one happiness, and and how long can that feeling of happiness last? Oh, classic, classic <laughs> psychology study, Dashran. And this one, I think um, a lot of our listeners might be familiar too. So uh, it's a classic psychology study that found that lottery winners, right? The initial happiness, right? Uh, increases the moment they experience their windfall. So imagine, Dashran, if you, you know, lucked out and you got like the lucky four digits, right? Right. And you just yeah, sudden windfall, right? But, you know, um, what, what they tend to find, what is often reported from this study, as old as it is, is that the uh, lottery winners, their happiness reverts to their baseline pre-windfall level after some time. They might be slightly happier, right? But um, the, the level of happiness just hovers maybe a little bit over the baseline. So if you're asking for a time, um, if my memory serves me well enough, it's about a year, year and a half, and then they, you know, get back down to yeah, the pre pre-windfall baseline levels. But the study is old, right? So I should say that as an update, this was conducted sometime around the the 70s. It has been criticized. Uh, We have much more sophisticated methods these days uh, that tells us about the links between uh, winning the lottery and and happiness. So a more recent study, I should say, I'll just add here very quickly, Mm -hmm. uh, sampling from the UK individuals who have won medium to a fairly large size lottery. Uh, so, So about a thousand to about 120,000 pounds. So that was indeed, right, the study that found that there was indeed a significant increase in their their health, their psychological well-being. Right. So that's about 30 years apart, right, between the US study, which shows that people revert uh, to the baseline, and then, right, this UK study that says, no, no, there's actually an increase. So there's so many factors at play here. The world is certainly very different today than it was 30 years ago. So I think those um, general economic conditions, for instance, those would have influenced the results that we see. On the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T. He's an associate professor in psychology. After the break, I ask him if an equitable society is a happier society. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T. Associate professor in psychology at Help University. And today we are exploring the age-old question, can money buy happiness? So, Dr. Eugene, when discussing this topic, right, there are some who argue that money definitely cannot buy happiness. Otherwise, why would you see rich and famous people dying by suicide? Or people also argue that, you know, rich and famous people wouldn't need therapy and and things like that. But I'm wondering if it's not that more money equals more happiness. And I think you touched on this in the first half of the show a little bit. But rather that you need to hit a certain level of wealth or income to be mm. generally happy or content with your life. You need to have a certain level of financial stability to not worry about food, medical bills, mortgages, and then, you know, if you have a family, a um, certain amount of money so you don't have to worry about your, your kids' education and things mm. like that. And not having to worry about these things is 
happiness in in that sense but doesn't mean that someone who earns 100,000 is going to be more happy than someone who earns 90,000 and someone who earns 110,000 how do you see it yeah so absolutely i think this goes back to the initial point mm-hmm. uh, that we shared right about money being you know something that allows you to i would like to think of it as buying choices and access to things that will make your life content anything that removes dissatisfaction or discomfort but you're right in saying as well that you know wealth does come at a price so you might want to think about why is it that even when individuals like you mentioned the rich and famous right they 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 still seek out assistance they need to attend therapy or if they die by suicide so just to add on to my points earlier once you hit a certain point where you've earned enough to sustain a comfortable not necessarily a luxurious life mm-hmm. other factors become more important determinants of happiness um there is another theory uh, that I'm just just came to mind that I often referred to it's called the hygiene motivated theory right? right suggesting that all other things held equal money is a better remover of dissatisfaction than it is a provider of satisfaction it's mainly applied towards employee motivation so this is from industrial organizational psychology and the main claims is that if you want to remove dissatisfaction you need to make sure that your workplace is safe you provide a decent salary again highlighting the emphasis on salary than money right and good relationships between coworkers but but if you want to increase satisfaction at least in work you want to make sure that the work is meaningful it allows you know workers to be recognized and we talked so much about recognition right people's place in the world who am i you know beyond just my professional roles my professional identities right and also also another topic right um a sense of growth feeling of growth but back to your question i want to mm-hmm. just steer this back a little bit uh, which I'll answer with additional questions. So just to just to tickle your brain so to speak, right? Why why do you think the wealthy engage in philanthropy? Why do they set up charitable organizations? Right. Why why do they devote time and efforts towards actions efforts aimed towards some greater collective good? So I suspect, right, just to round off that for the rich and famous, they are getting something else from these efforts. They're using their money to foster meaningful connections, things otherwise not attained materially with cohort cash. Right. Now, on a similar note, right? I'm wondering if our current capitalistic economic model which brings about, you know, the the rat race, people mm. overworked and underpaid, um people forced to dedicate hours and hours of work on uh, quote unquote meaningless tasks um just to grow their material wealth a little bit but grow other people's material wealth a lot um <laughs> you know i i'm wondering if all of these are factors that contribute towards unhappiness yeah if you're wondering where your cheese is i'll share your sentiment that i'm also not sure where my cheese is already right he <laughs> seems to be getting smaller what right this this can certainly be the case mm-hmm. right but Let's not kid ourselves first that money isn't important. I'm certainly not here to say that yeah, you know, live an ascetic sort of life, right? Don't need to worry about materials, tangibles and you'll be fine. No. I I I'm not uh I'm not suggesting that. It it is a necessity. You might have even heard statements uh, if we link it to work and and prosperity and richness. Someone once said, right? You can guess it is glorious to be rich. Someone else said nobody ever changed the world on uh by just working 40 hours a week right and that working 9 hours 6 days a week is the key to success so just as a quiz right you can guess who said that but <laughs> but this is certainly a far cry from um the economist John Maynard Keynes prediction in the 30s where he said that his grandchildren will be working uh say 
14, 15 hour work weeks. So indeed increasing workload and hours spent at work without, I think the security and stability or being afforded, uh, you know, a decent living, put down money for a house, for instance, without sacrificing one's free time relationships. And I think this has led us to a stark realization. This, this, um, capitalistic economic model that you're referring to. We live in a world with an excessive emphasis, I feel, on the necessity of such material security without the guarantee of its attainment. I, I recall even some discussions, right? You're talking about meaningless work. There's a book called Both Jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Meaningless jobs that harm, right? They're routine, they're mundane. They, they harm rather than benefit society. So here I'll just say, you know, not working is a surefire way to be miserable, right, but working too much and fixating on career advancements, external like, targets, attaining status, material rewards, those are still not guarantees of happiness either. I want to, you know, you brought up something that is very interesting. I think it's very apt to this question, right, that we are a, a society that emphasizes um, mm. so much on attaining, uh, on, on, you know, material wealth, without the promise of being able to attain it. And I think mm. that is the, the key here that I want to hone in on, right? Because it's, it's like you said, it's not so much of we saying that not working will bring you more happiness rather than, mm. you know, working. Because I think people want to contribute um, in whatever way. But it's this idea that we are forced, because in, in this current um, economic model, the way things are run, it's like you said, we are forced that this is the the rules of the game or whatever it may be. This is the game that we are we have we are, have to play, um, and and it says that you know you you need to um, do so and so and you need to slog and you need to um, even if it's meaningless jobs or things that doesn't contribute to society, you need mm. to do it because you need to chase this material wealth because otherwise it's not gonna uh, you know bring happiness, which is true because everything even healthcare everything you need to pay for it, um, yes. and I'm wondering if that is is the contributing factor to unhappiness this it's exactly like what you said you know this idea that everybody needs to play the game but there's no promise that everybody will get an equal share of the pie yes and what does that tell you about the game dashran mm -hmm. i think it's broken to absolutely some extent, isn't it right mm -hmm. so you'll also see in response to that uh, movements around the world especially in far east um you know cultures right uh, the 996 book culture, there's been a pushback. There's the Life Lab movement over in China as well, where a lot of youths, right, are, you know, they're, they're not going up in arms, uh, literally speaking, but they're certainly pushing back. Mm -hmm. And there's a societal trend towards saying no more, all right? The work is not only backbreaking, it's soul crushing. And I would rather not play this game. I would not, I would rather not adhere to societal expectations that success means a house in the suburbs, right, with at least one car, um, you know, a partner with two children, right? So I, I think a lot of people are chewing or, you know, almost disregarding these ideas and saying that, you know, it's it's not the life that they want. They're looking for something else. A, a sociologist or an economist might be able to provide a better insight right. on this. But, you know, from a psychological point of view, I can, I can understand that, you know, material possessions, material security is not directly related to meaningfulness of one's life. Hmm. Does material wealth um, equate to happiness in all parts of the world, um, especially when we look at it, you know, historically? Mm -hmm. 
Right. So uh, this is where we take the conversation to the country level, isn't it? Right. So, right. So you'll find um, that, say, if we use country level data, so I'm thinking about GDP per capita, uh, there is indeed a correlate with happiness as measured by um, life satisfaction. So, right. but there there is an interesting paradox, right? It's coined by uh, the economist that that bears this paradox's name, Richard Easterlin, uh, show that national wealth, right? is not always on par with growing national happiness. So if you follow along this line of reasoning, Dashan, it's like richer people are happier than poorer people within a country. Makes right. sense. Makes sense. Absolutely. Right? But but at the country level, richer countries are not necessarily happier than poorer countries. So you think, what gives, right? So if you just sum up everything, it's just like, well, if all the people in the country are happy, then surely, generally as a whole, in some, right, happy countries are going to be the richer countries, but that's not necessarily the case. So there, there are, of course, acknowledged criticisms and debates surrounding this issue. But to answer your question, I think sometimes um, what, what, what researchers have argued is that and there have been some attempts, right, for them to resolve this paradox. So a couple of researchers say that this might be due to increasing income equality. So part of your answer that does it equate to happiness across all parts of the world? No, I think that's another factor that plays in, plays out here. So the main argument is that as a country's wealth increases, so too does the disparity, the gulf, right. the gap between the rich and the poor, right? So the researchers that argue that if there aren't mechanisms, right, uh, to, to redistribute the wealth within the country, then the wealth disparity widens you have a richer country, but not necessarily richer citizens. Great inequalities and disparities lead to, you know, us thinking less perceived fairness, diminished opportunities that you think that access to health education are only accessible to those with money and overall this lowest social mobility as well. So the answer becomes a little bit more complex because we think that it does, but some part of it also depends on whether there is mechanisms in place in a country to redistribute that wealth and to limit the disparity as countries get richer. Now, that's interesting because then now I'm wondering if it ties to equity, right? Which mm. is why when we, uh, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Eugene, when, whenever we look at the global happiness index, especially these days, maybe the past five, ten years or so, maybe a little bit longer, you see a lot of Scandinavian countries um, topping the list um, mm. compared to um, you know, countries like, let's say, the US and, and China, which are way more rich. You know, if you just look at it on a blanket level, the US and China are way, you know, huge, bigger economies than, let's say, a, a Denmark or a Sweden or, or whatever it may be. Um, but it's like you said, because I'm wondering if it ties back to what you said, where in, let's say, in a country like the US, for example, yeah, you might have, you know, nine out of the top 10 billionaires in the US but there is this huge income um, disparity, um, their wealth disparity, um, where the, the common folk can't even afford healthcare, um, you know, all, all sorts of things, um, compared to, let's say, a country like Denmark, where even a McDonald's worker gets about $22 an hour um, wages. Um, so I'm wondering, Dr. Eugene, is an equitable society a happier society? You're not wrong, Dashan. So there's no need for me, absolutely nothing for me to correct. You've actually answered part of the question already. Simply put, yes, you'll also find that equitable societies may also be happier because of uh, this, this dimension of culture. You might be familiar with this. Uh, some of our listeners might be as well. Low power distance, right? So right. there is a lower disparity between the influential and the influenced, the powerful and the less powerful. I wouldn't say anyone you know, listening to this is powerless. 
um, we would certainly be in the countries that you described, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Scandinavian countries have had a, a, a culture of egalitarianism, I would say to, to a lot um, um, to, to a lot of extent as well, countries in, um, in Oceania, so Australia, New Zealand mm-hmm. as well. So if we were more egalitarian, if we accepted less but, uh, and not more differences in disparity in power, we would certainly be a happier uh, country, right? Interestingly, interestingly, the study that I am referring to here to draw upon all these findings is that happier societies, get this, right, mm-hmm. also tend to be higher on femininity, Right. right, they're also less averse to uncertainty. So you get really, you know, traditional gender roles, masculinity, right? right. That that didn't seem to lead to more happy societies. But I, I think there's a point here to be made about Scandinavian countries because they are also some of the most feminine in the world. This is not, you know, an inappropriate term. We, if we're saying femininity, we're talking about communal values, cooperation, empathy, right, respect for for um, each other's dignity, human rights, for instance. So I think these are more communal characteristics uh, that that feature in happier societies rather than less happy ones. Certainly. All right. Before we wrap this conversation up. Final thoughts, does money buy happiness? Simple answer to that question, right? Before we go for another half an hour, right? Yes, <laughs> up, up to a certain point. Again, I would say it's a better remover of dissatisfaction. This is based on substantial research. Uh, so better remover on, of dissatisfaction than it is a driver of satisfaction or sustained long-term happiness. After you've had your basic needs met, you're better off spending money on experiential purchases, spending on others, devoting your time, your energies uh, to more meaningful causes. So hopefully, right, next time you have a bit of disposable income on the side, right, um, you can make your ringgit or your dollar, whichever currency you're, you're using, right, um, run, uh, you know, stretch out better for your happiness uh, by more thoughtful, deliberate, mindful spending. On that note, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're most welcome, Nashan. Enjoy the conversation as always. That was Dr. Eugene T. He's an associate professor in psychology at Help University. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.